couple of weeks ago, Chris asked me, he said, he sent me a text while I was at work, and he said, hey, what's the plan for when I'm gone leading the group to Italy for Sundays? And I texted back, I think I want to get Shane and I to talk about Romans chapter 12. And then he texted me and said, call me as soon as you can. And so I was like, okay. And so I called him when I had a break. And as I was talking to him, he's like, I'm thinking about doing a whole series on Romans when I get back, a whole big deep dive. Why do you want to talk about Romans chapter 12? I was like, well, I thought it would be a nice consolation for those of us who didn't get to go to Italy to think about Italy and Romans a little bit, right? Don't be jealous for them. Be happy for them. And just hope for me to win the Mega Millions and I'll take you all on a trip. Um, so he said, but why Romans 12? I said, because it's one of my favorite chapters in all of the scripture. And so I started talking to him a little bit about that. A few years ago, I went to my parents' home church. And while I was there, I saw that they were getting ready to do this new whole series. And they had a lot of slick promotion from some marketing company about the series that they were going to do. And it was like the top 100 chapters of the Bible, And I was like, huh, a top 100 list of the Bible. What could possibly go wrong with that? Because you know how those top 10 lists work or the greatest football players of the last 25 years. There's always somebody who's left off the list. And as sure enough, I went through that list really quick, and Romans chapter 12 wasn't on there, and I was just appalled. I was like, I don't know who you jokers are who think you know how to measure the scriptures by value or worth, but this is not cutting it. Because Romans chapter 12 to me was just so high on my list. And then I was also a little upset because of the implication of lists like that and charts like that of what you should focus on. I know that reading through all of the Bible is a challenge, that reading through all of the Bible is is difficult. And I know that they were well-meaning and well-intentioned, and so they were just trying to make it a little bit easier. But doing something like that is like going into a fitness center and seeing 100 different stations, 100 different pieces of equipment, one different, uh, 100 different apparatus or inst- in exercise instructions, and thinking to yourself, if I do this one today and that one tomorrow and bench press over here this next week and I'll go to, to do the treadmill and then I'll do the elliptical, that somehow after 100 days you're going to be stronger or healthier. It doesn't work like that. That's when, how a fitness center works. It takes time and effort and repeat and over and over again in that. And that's what the scriptures are. The scriptures are meditation literature. It's not a novel. It's not a book that you work yourself through and think that you've accomplished something. It's something that you read and read and reread and you reflect and you question and you ask and you debate and you talk with others and discuss and you apply it at the different seasons of your life because it has different meanings at different times. And as you do that, you're not just reading the scripture and doing the work in the scripture, but the scripture starts reading you and working in you and through you. And that's what leads to change in health and growth. Any of the checklists, any of the the measurements about what you think may or may not make a healthy or strong Christian are actually going to measure your guilt or arrogance more than it is your health and your strength. And so I didn't like this idea, this top 100, even as well-intentioned as it was, not just because it left out Romans chapter 12. To find out why I really like Romans chapter 12 is... To, to kind of get an overview of Romans and to, to see how God works through this history, this time period, 
The Roman Empire is well in control of most of the known world, and their culture is really spreading and influencing, but they're also bringing in a lot of diversity of thought and a lot of diversity of ideas, a lot of diversity of religion into understanding uh, the way we live and work and move and be within this world. Not only were they influential then, but they're cast a huge shadow of influence throughout the world today. Their architecture is still found in places in Lebanon and uh, Egypt and uh, throughout the Eastern European and Western European empires and down into Africa. You can see what they built and how they constructed things. And they're so well built that some of the amphitheaters and arenas can still host rock concerts and productions and plays to this day. Their impact was huge, but at this particular time when the book of Romans was written, it's written about 55, 60 AD, about 25 plus years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's starting to be a little bit of questioning this whole idea of polytheism, of worship of many different gods, and there's an attraction to the different groups that they're learning about that have monotheistic ideas. There's, a, there's an attraction towards even Judaism, as the Jewish people have spread away from that part of the world where they were really concentrated into different parts of the Roman Empire. They start setting up smaller synagogues or house meeting groups uh, to be able to pass on the faith and to preserve the Jewish traditions that they've kept and carried. And now the Jesus movement has really started taking off, and people like Paul have really helped the churches to have uh, house churches throughout the coastal areas of the Mediterranean, as well as east of and north and south on the land routes away from Jerusalem and Judea. And now they're also sharing a message through this time and space. And so when Paul who is very influential in all of the spread of the Jesus Movement churches, starts thinking about the world and starts thinking about where he should go next because he was a, a rolling stone. He was a guy who did not like to be in established places. He wanted to be able to go to the next new thing. He wanted to carry something and build something new rather than sit in something established. He started looking to Spain. He started thinking more west than in anybody had taken the gospel. And he knew about the church, the developing group of Christians within the city of Rome and on the Italian peninsula. And he thought, maybe if I can get to there, I can speak to a group of people I've not yet spoken to and be with them for a little bit. And then maybe that will help launch me further west towards Spain and to be able to carry the gospel a little bit further. And so he and his companions craft this letter, Romans, not just to the church at Rome, but to be able to help consolidate the different thinking and the different ways that they're trying to frame the theology of Jesus and this Jesus movement to the different churches throughout the empire that he is already well acquainted with. And so it really kind of falls into to four parts as I look at the book of Romans. There's chapters 1 through 8, which demonstrate that this creator God has this continuing plan of hope and healing for the world through Jesus the Christ, through Jesus of Nazareth. And so chapters 1 to 8 just talk about how the creator God that is celebrated within the Jewish tradition is continuing to work and move and 
be something great within our lives through the teaching and the life of Jesus, as we apply that, we can carry that further to hope and healing in our world. And then chapters 9 to 11 are Paul's perspective on how Judaism and Christianity, this new Jesus movement, are really in relationship together. It's his perspective on how they have something shared, but something different to be able to say to all of us. And then as it gets further into that, uh, that letter, chapters 12 through 16 is the third and fourth part. 12 through 16 deal with practical lessons for being a Jesus follower, and then personal remarks to people that Paul knows that this letter is going to be circulated out to. So those are the kind of four parts of the book of Romans. And so if you look then at Romans chapter 12, which I say is one of my favorite, it kicks off this whole section on what is the practical teaching, what is the, the nitty-gritty of what it means to be a Jesus follower, and what would be the number one thing that you would want to pass on to somebody to understand how to be a Jesus follower? What would be the number one thing? What would be the number one lesson? Love. Love is the number one thing that Paul wants to be able to communicate when he gets to the practical part of his letter and trying to be able to pass that along. But love, as related to Romans 12, isn't what we need necessarily think of as the love chapter from Paul. Paul already has a love chapter, and that's 1 Corinthians 13. Even if you don't know what 1 Corinthians is or chapter 13 and what 13 is about, you know the text of 1 Corinthians 13 because I'm sure you've heard it or seen it in a variety of different ways. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It does not keep any records of wrongs. It always hopes. It always protects. It always perseveres. Love never fails and a bunch of other stuff that I left out of that synopsis. That text, that's Paul's love chapter. But as I read that, it's very inspirational and it's very aspirational. It doesn't help me do those things. It's like reading the dictionary of a word. It doesn't help me know how to do it. In fact, as I'm trying to be patient, hearing that love is patient doesn't help me be more patient. It's more likely to elicit the opposite response out of me as I lose patience in the midst of trying to be reminded that love is patient. But to hear Paul say those things doesn't help me be loving, doesn't help me do love. But when you get into Romans chapter 12, that's what makes it such a gem for me and my perspective and how I've read scripture is because it helps me understand how to love. Now, when someone looks at Romans chapter 12, there's even a heading partway down in that chapter that says of love going forward from verse 9 through 21. But you've got to have verses 1 through 8 to understand how to get to verse 9 before you can go further. Love, as defined in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, must be sincere, Paul says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And then it gets into verses 10 through 21, all these amazing impacts and examples of what a sincere love can do and be. All of us know what fake love looks like and sounds like when somebody's trying to be all kind to you. I, like I said, I, I lived several years in the South. I ministered for 17 years in the South. And, you know, there's nothing worse than hearing somebody say, bless your heart. 
because there is nothing loving about that. There's no, no sincerity in that statement when somebody says that in the Deep South. Oh, that man walked out of the house looking like that. Bless his heart. Oh, bless his heart. That little boy's head's lopsided. It just becomes this way of gossiping or pointing out wrong more than an actual sincere love of appreciation and being able to help someone. And, and we know what insincere looks like. We know what insincere love sounds like. We, we know that we don't need any kind of insincere love within our world. But that was a part of the challenge for the early Jesus movement is because you had such an amazing example of love in Jesus, walking and moving among people and helping people and being with people and touching people who are untouchable and going to people who otherwise other people were trying to avoid. And then all of us normal human beings struggling with how do we act out in sincerity towards others? How do I practice this kind of love towards others as Jesus so wonderfully and perfectly did? It was a struggle. And it was a struggle for the early Christian communities to be able to figure out how do we help one another have sincere love? John writes about it in his letters. He says, don't just love with words. Love in actions and in truth. It's a constant theme throughout the New Testament is trying to help people who really want to follow Jesus put aside the insincerity of love and pick up the sincerity of love. That's why Paul is able to write 1 Corinthians 13. It's, again, that definition of love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, but it doesn't help us be those things. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, show us the path towards having sincere love. And then the examples and the impact through the rest of the chapter are only possible when you've done the hard work that is within those first eight verses. Romans chapter 12 begins with Shane had us last week, verses 1 and 2, in view of God's mercy towards us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to have a renewed mind. This is the continual challenge and why Shane gave it such an amazing message last week. And if you, if you didn't hear Shane's message last week, go back this week, take some time this week and listen to that because we have to have a renewed mind to be pulled out of the culture like the atmosphere that presses down upon us constantly that makes us value and seek and desire things that aren't necessarily of God. You have to have a renewed mind to be able to value and to seek and desire the things of God and the way God sees this world, not the commercialized, the capitalistic ways, the, the, the me first kind of selfish mentality of getting mine and only mine protectionist kind of things. you got to be able to have this renewed mind to be able to pursue the things of God and what God desires for this world. That's the continual challenge in step number one. And then when you get into verses three through eight, you have where I want to talk a little bit more about today, these two things that are kind of the two sides of one coin. There is humility and what I'll call mutuality. Humility, how I see myself, and mutuality is how I see everyone else. How I see myself, 
and how I see everybody else. Paul says in verse 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but think of yourself with sober judgment. That's the word he uses, sober. You ever meet somebody who's so high on themselves that you know they got to be high on something else? Paul apparently did too. And he said, you need to find some people who've got some sober perspective on themselves. And you need to be people who have sober perspective of yourself. So don't think of yourself more highly and inflated than you are. And then the other side of that coin, the mutuality is to be able to not just see others as equal as you, but that's a part of the humility side, but to see a, a shared purpose, to be able to share to see a shared likeness, to see a shared responsibility together, to be able to partner together in the things of Christ, that we all have a part. As the video shared a few moments ago in the segment that we were watching, it's about sharing life together. It's not just about seeing others as equal in value to you, but even though they're different than you, finding a way of being able to work with them partner with them, appreciate their different perspectives, appreciate their different backgrounds, appreciate the differences that they bring to the table, and how that complements you, not competes with you, towards bringing good within this world, to bringing hope and healing, as Pastor Chris is going to be talking to us about over the next several weeks, to this world. How do we work together within that? Both humility and mutuality are such a huge part of the New Testament teaching. Humility and mutuality are, are huge challenges for the early church. Not only do they have this empire culture that's making them think and value and pursue things that are different from them, but they also have this stratification of classes, of values, of persons going on all around them. And so... James, as the ladies are going to be focused on in the next several weeks, James focuses on a lot of dealing with pride and not seeing yourself as better than other individuals. And so much of the scriptures also from Paul's writing focuses on the mutuality aspect. Paul says in Galatians, the third chapter, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free, but that we are all one in Christ. There's a mutuality. There's a kinship. There's a shared relationship and partnership. And we within our world today have that influence of that Roman empire still within our systems of thinking about other people. We lack humility when it comes to people of difference. We lack a shared sense of mutuality when it comes to someone who thinks differently than we do or is from a different part of the country or a different part of the world than we are and has different values than us. And we separate into the way we think versus the way they think the things that we value versus what they value. And we get into all this binary thinking of us versus them and us greater than them. And that tears apart the fabric of what it means to be a part of the Jesus movement, to be a connected to Jesus of Nazareth, who sought to bring humanity together under the continuing purposes of the creator God for the good of this world. When we see Ourself, our perspective, our values, our politics, our songs, our traditions as greater than another group's. We undo the sincerity of love. And love between us cannot be sincere when we lack that humility, when we lack 
that mutuality. Love can only be sincere when we see ourselves with sober judgment and we see others as having something to contribute to us and to our shared purpose and not take away from us and our shared purpose. And that's the challenge. And what Paul says is to be able to see each other as part of a shared body of Christ. Just as your members of your body, he says, don't compete with each other, but they learn to cooperate together and work together. And that's where mutuality and humility really start to find traction within our lives. It's not just showing up in the same places and singing the same songs and listening to the same message week after week or year after year. It's in getting in partnership with one another. That's where humility and mutuality can really take shape. And that's what begins to craft sincere love within us. If we do not find purpose together, we will not find sincere love. If we want our love to be sincere, we have to find ways of partnering and purposing together. We want you to come into OG, but we want you to be a part of what Orchard Grove is doing as well, because that's where the real transformation takes place within your lives. We want you to attend, but we want you to participate, because in that participation, you start rubbing shoulders with people of difference. And you start appreciating them for who they are. You start appreciating the gifts that they bring, the perspectives that they bring, and you're not seeing them as different anymore, but mutual all of a sudden. We have to have a renewed mind. We have to have a humility. We have to have a mutuality, and that will create sincere love within us and through us that will lead to the impact of all the examples of the rest of Romans chapter 12. Renewed mind, humility, mutuality. The reason why we're at Orchard Grove is because I saw this as a part of the heartbeat of Pastor Chris and Vicki, as a part of the staff at Orchard Grove. The more people that I interacted with here, the more that we were in small groups, the more that we went beyond those small groups, the more we started resonating that these are people that have that heartbeat with us, that we want sincere love. But you don't just get to sincere love because you say you want it. You don't get to sincere love because you use the right words. You get the sincere love because you practice a renewing of your mind, a seeking of humility, a seeking of mutuality in partnership together. My plea for you is not just to come into this space, but to come into this space with shared purpose together, to go out into the programs that we support across this community and across this world with a shared purpose and mission and learn from one another and grow with one another and love one another with sincerity because that's what's going to make the impact within your life and through our lives together. Renewed mind, humility, mutuality. That is the path to sincere love. That is the path that Paul lays out for us in Romans chapter 12. And it's something that I keep coming back to and within my own life, every time I read this, I see it a little bit differently and it challenges me to go a little bit further with others. 
Anytime that I find myself starting to be impatient, not kind, rude, self-seeking, those things that Paul say are not a part of love, I have to come back and say, let me renew my mind. Let me be a little bit more humble. Let me be a little bit more shared partnership and mutuality. I don't know how I'm doing on time. I'm going to tell you a story that really drives love home for me. When I was in college, in a part of the church tradition that I came from, every Monday, Thursday, the Thursday before Good Friday, where we celebrate the, uh, the start of communion, we remember also John chapter 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And so we'll come together for a special service in my church tradition of origin where we not only share the Lord's Supper, but we also wash one another's feet. The women go off into a room and they do their thing and the guys will go into a room. And usually it's a set up in a circle with water and towels in the middle of the room. And somebody will get up and go and wash the feet of a brother within the circle. And as they would do that, there's something that happens in that space when you set aside your pride and kneel in front of somebody else and do that. And that's why Jesus says, you know, you'll be blessed if you do this. There's, a, there's something that happens within that space, and I know it sounds really weird. But I remember in college, I was in this largest room of guys that I'd ever been a part of before in this large church, and I watched a man who was washing the feet of his children, and he was talking to his sons about how Jesus had did this and now how he was teaching them to do it and how they also needed to love one another and do this for one another. And it was beautiful. It was heartbreaking. I was so caught up in what he was doing, and I was praying to myself, God, if you ever give me sons, I hope I can have a moment like this. And so as I was sitting there watching this amazing moment happen, I realized that, like, the entire room has already done this. Like, they've already washed everybody's feet, and I hadn't done that for anybody else in the room. And I started looking around the room saying, oh, no, they've been done, they've been done, they've been done. Oh, I'm not doing his feet. They've been done, they've been done, they've been done. And as I looked around the room like that, he was the only one. But uh uh-uh, no, no. You see, because it was that guy, that guy who dated my wife before I dated my wife. That guy who found out when we started dating took my wife to Dairy Queen to ask her to marry him before we could get serious. That guy who wanted to make sure she knew all the truth about me before she continued to go on with me. That guy who got the internship at the church that I wanted to get the internship and the pastor made us have to partner together to be able to do stuff together. But it was such a toxic relationship that he said that he was... Uh, passing uh, the baton to me to do things rather than him do them. And it was just this constant back and forth with that guy. And I remember looking across the room like, uh-uh, I guess I'm not doing it this year. And I could feel just the anger inside of me. And it was like I could hear God behind me saying, why not? And I'm just talking to myself at this point, but I'm talking to God. Well, you know why not. I don't have to explain to you. 
We've had lots of conversations about that guy. And as I'm sitting there in the silence of the moment, I could hear God say, I'd wash his feet. And I said, well, of course you would. You're God. You're Jesus. You can do that. Go ahead. Show up. And then I knew I had to do it. I was caught. My, my love was in words, but it wasn't in actions and in truth. And I was stuck. Do I love in actions and in truth? Or I just be more a part of the problem? And up to that point in my life, the hardest thing I had ever done was to get up, walk to the middle of the room, pour that water, take up that towel, and go and kneel in front of that guy. And I could hardly look up. And when I did, I could see him beginning to cry. And then I said the stupidest thing that's ever been said in a foot washing service. I said, I know we've gotten off on the wrong foot. <laughs> and as soon as I said it, he looked at me like, what? And I said, never mind. I said, regardless, I'm here because I know that God loves you, that God has purpose for you, and that if he were here, he would be doing this. And so I'm here to say, I will love you. And I will try to see that same purpose in you too. And I washed his feet. And I'd love to say that happy ending, he was the best man in my wedding and all kinds of other stuff. No, we, we hardly ever spoke ever, ever again. That's not the point. The point was, I was at a crossroads from whether or not I was going to have sincere love and view myself with humility and mutuality with somebody who I absolutely couldn't stand. Or was I going to take that path of sincere love? I always want to be that person who takes that path of sincere love after Jesus. And what I find in Orchard Grove is that there are others who want that sincere love path. And I'm telling you, the only way is through renewed mind, humility, and mutuality. Not showing up here, not reading some Bible plan, not listening to the same things. It's partnering together side by side in actions and in truth.